Welcome to Brand New Doctor. My name is Rola Carajo, doctor turned healthcare graphic designer and brand strategist. This is the show where we share big ideas and look for inspiration in all kinds of places to help you grow a fulfilling career in healthcare. Following a path to success is one thing, but carving your own is another. So this is for you if you want to go beyond book smart. I'm joined today by Hamad Khan. He is a graduate medical student who's making a big impact in social prescribing. He envisions a health service focused on promoting health and preventing rather than treating disease. When he's not studying medicine, he's working as the Global Development Officer for the National Academy for Social Prescribing. He's co-leading the Global Social Prescribing Student Council to advance education on the topic around the world. And he's researching international models for social prescribing, being the first to author a global report in collaboration with the WHO. Last year, Hamad won the Hillary International Award for Health and Care Leadership, which recognized his advocacy in tackling overprescribing through medical education. Honestly, I could go on about your achievements, Hamad, but what is really, really important is your character. And we haven't spoken a ton, but when we did speak, I was left with the impression that all of these achievements and things that you're doing are born of a genuine, true passion for holistically caring for human beings. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm just so excited to hear more about that. And share a bit of that passion that you have with other people. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So we're going to talk more about social prescribing and the amazing possibilities out there. But first, I want to focus on you. So the last time we spoke, you told me your personal story, and it was just wonderful to hear how you've been led by your curiosity and your passion. So can you talk more about your journey and what experiences have led you to where you are now? Yeah, I mean, my higher education journey started with going into neuroscience. So I did neuroscience as my BSc, and that was my sort of um, education to understanding more about health and disease. You know, for three years, you're learning about not only the simple biological proteins and biochemistry, but then you go into the wider topics of who are you? Are you your brain? Are you your mind? And some really existential questions. And that sort of education was incredibly formative because at the same time, during my third year of my neuroscience degree, I was also asked to just volunteer for a social prescribing project for early stage dementia patients. And I just sort of, you know, going into that sort of project and volunteering for that early stage dementia social prescribing project, I saw that actually I'm not being taught a lot more about health and disease beyond just the symptoms. And I realized I have this very strong biomedical clinical gaze. And this is before going into medicine. This is in my neuroscience degree. And for the first time, I saw patients outside of a clinical setting. I saw them, you know, how they would be when they're with their friends and families. I saw, you know, how disease isn't just physical symptoms, you know, in dementia. We talk, talk about neurofibrillary tangles and amyloid plaques. And here I'm seeing patients wrestling with the ideas of what is their diagnosis? What is their identity? Can they be more of who they want to be when they've been sentenced with a diagnosis and is a diagnosis a fate is it something that they then have to mold themselves into or is it something that they can say okay this is what's happening right now but this is only a part of my story how can I best improve my sense of resilience my sense of self and not be 
um, informed and molded by a very small niche biomedical idea of health and disease. And so these were all niche, diffuse ideas that were flying around my head. And then I decided to do my master's in global health and development. And that was, I, I, I call it the year of positive radicalization in terms of, I learned about the political determinants of health. I learned about socioeconomic determinants of health. I learned about how we are sort of disservicing not only our patients, but also globally health systems and how they're not fit to actually value well-being. And how, in fact, all of our global systems, politically, socially, they're not valuing well-being. They're valuing very sort of incongruent and unnecessary things like GDP will value things that are poor for health because it's ultimately just looking at, you know, valuing money, increasing growth, increasing assets, increasing capital. And so that was like a really sort of formative point in my life where I thought, oh, wow, I've. I really need to do something with myself and something with this life that I've been given. And I remember so vividly, I, I applied to medicine during my um, year uh, in global health um, and development. And after finishing my master's, I, I had two or three months left and I was thinking, do I actually want to go into medicine? And I was a bit teary-eyed, this is a safe space, so I was there. I was very teary-eyed actually. And I was thinking, yeah, that's another five years of going into debt. I come from a very working class background five years of not knowing how I'll get through that. Um, but there was something that was putting me towards it. And then the thing that was just rattling in my head and the, this sort of thought that just formalized from that thinking process was, what about your invisible patients? The patients that you'll never see, the patients that can't come to the clinic, the patients that can't vocalize their stresses and concerns, the patients who will never know what it's like for someone to listen to them because they've never even had that safe space and capacity to even know that there's people there for them. And I'm thinking, I want to work at that level. So yes, I want to go into medicine, but I also want to be working in a capacity where I'm not just working for the individual patient and not just for the patient that I can see, but for the patients that I can't see, the patients who don't have the privilege to come to my clinic because they don't have accessibility. They can't navigate the systems of care. And when I, I, I mean, it sounds very moral high standing and it was quite a profound sort of moment. And I thought, that's it. I don't care what else I do. I don't care how I do it, that, I don't know where it came from, but it just, it crystallized from my soul. And I was like, that's what I need to do. And I think that's what sort of helped form my passions and projects when I was going into medicine. And it's not, I don't just want to become a doctor. I don't, I don't just want to, you know, help people. And as it was, and as noble as that is, as diffuse and as, as, as that is, I said, I, I want to help the most dispossessed disenfranchised, the most disregarded. That's what I want to do. And that's the mentality um, that came from my neuroscience degree, my um, master's degree. And that's what I've been doing as a medical student. Wow, that is beautiful. That's so lovely to hear. It's just incredible because I think, I think back to my journey into medicine and so much of myself and my ideas about the world had not crystallized in that way. And the contrast, you know, in, in the kind of the reasons why you go into medicine are just like so far apart. I think for me, I was, I was very much just as still in that kind of institutionalized mode of like, you go into school and then you go to sixth form and then you go to university and you, blah, 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 you just do these things one after the other and you just have to prove yourself. I mean, I was young, I guess, but yeah, I, you know, you, you, you had more life experience and 
you had so much more informing your your choices at that point. I think that's a great place to come from. That, that, that's what I th- think, you know, as a graduate student, I see undergraduates going into medicine and I've got undergraduate colleagues as well. And I, I, I think of myself as incredibly privileged, actually. I've been given the space and education to actually have a very critical lens, you know, and understand actually what is medicine? What is a doctor for? Am I serving those purposes? Am I just learning pharmaceutical biomedical pathways? You know, so I'm, I, I have that sort of criticality and I don't sort of steep myself into, I won't say unnecessary, but like textbook education, because I think the bigger picture is that it's far more important. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. I, I, you don't have, as students, you don't get the space to even think about that. And you don't even have the education. You're not even afforded the education. So, I mean, my journey was very haphazard and I'm very fortunate that I've been afforded that sort of thinking. Yeah, it's it's really wonderful, and I I I hope to people who to people who are listening who've kind of come from the same kind of background that I did, where they just kind of went straight into undergraduate medicine. I think it is wonderful to hear from someone else with a, a different perspective, because I do think that you can still create those conditions for yourself to kind of open up your perspective and and learn about health from different angles, not just the the textbook kind of way of seeing things. So let's talk a little bit more about social prescribing because, you know, to me, it seems that you give a much more expansive view of what social prescribing is and what it can do, much more so than anything I've ever heard before. And I think that is because of all of these experiences that you've spoken about from your neuroscience to, you know, interacting with patients in their own environment to the global the masters that you you did in global health as well. So can you explain in your own words what social prescribing is and why do you believe it's more important than ever? Yeah, so I, I mean, there's a whole academic debate on what are the constitutive elements of social prescribing? How can we recognize it? Because everyone's trying to implement their own thing. They're trying to mislabel social prescribing. So there's a lot of controversy and misconceptions around that. And my take on it is that social prescribing is very simple a responsive intervention addressing unmet social needs. What does that mean? That means that in a typical setting, a doctor or a healthcare professional or health worker has recognized that their patient who's sitting in front of them will perhaps benefit not from a biomedical intervention, but from a deeper, more systemic psychosocial intervention. Yes, you've got some symptomatic um, issues that you're presenting to me right now, but I'm seeing that actually that's perhaps deep-rooted and stemming from a wider lifestyle, economic, socio-political um, situation that's at home or in your environment or in your condition. And so instead of or with and in complementary to the biomedical intervention, i.e. a pill procedure or whatever else, I'm going to signpost you or I'm going to link you to a link worker. And in England, the link worker is someone who has a bit more time, unfortunately, than the 10 minutes that's afforded to our primary care doctors, and we'll get into that. And they're able to ask and investigate further. And the central sort of thinking around that social prescribing um, sort of uh, appointment is asking not what's the matter with you, but what matters to you. And so it's this co-development, patient-centered consultation where the link worker is able to understand, ah, okay, this is what's wrong, or this is what we can do to improve your sense of resilience and well-being. It's entirely evidence-based. And now let's see how we can incorporate you into your community or improve your um, lifestyle or improve your um, socio-political determinants or your socio-economic determinants, whatever it might be. 
this sounds all diffuse, but what it can relate to is ultimately you can, you can go into community practices. You can go into community social classes. For example, when I was doing my neuroscience degree for the early stage dementia patients, the social prescribing project was just every week, these patients coming together in a community playhouse and they were constructing Shakespeare plays. And as dark and as crazy as that sounds, that was also evidence-based because it was constructed around um, cognitive reinforcement and memory reinforcement. And we also know that social um, socialization and social cohesion is a protective factor against exacerbating um, your dementia symptoms. So it's entirely evidence-based. But then it can also um, be an intervention that's more fundamental. Like, for example, we know that there might be a lot of malnutrition um, in a particular patient demographic. So can we either signpost you to or help you um, essentially get access to better nutritional food? That's the sort of thing. So there's an intersection between health, politics, economics, and um, sociological factors. And social prescribing recognizes that. It provides that holistic lens and says, okay, you have poor health, but let's see what we can do about it beyond just prescribing traditional medicine. Mm-hmm. So why do you think that it's more important than we do this, that we, you know, we recognize these factors and then, you know, I think, I think it's always been important to do that, but why do you think it's critical that we do that now? It, here's the sound bite that, 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 that I prepared for that. And that's that the therapeutic revolution has failed to revolutionize the patient experience. And what I mean by that is that there's a sort of paradox in modern medicine, as I call it. And the paradox of modern medicine is very simple. We've got more medicines, more therapies, more treatments, more scientific medical understanding, and yet also, weirdly enough, a higher burden of disease. We've got more illness in our society. You can fact check that with different graphs showing that as our health spans are decreasing, our lifespans are increasing. And so there's this worrying pattern where we're living in more ill health. And so what's the sort of pattern of that is that there's going to be an increase and projected use of healthcare, of traditional healthcare. Why? Well, by 2030, one in six people will be 65 years plus. We, that will be an increase, a boom increase um, in traditional healthcare service use. So the elderly, we know that there's an increase in cardiovascular events, dementia, cancer, all of that sort of risk. We do not have enough hospitals. We do not have enough doctors. We cannot build enough hospitals and train enough doctors to meet that demand. And more importantly, that entire sort of pattern is pointed to the fact that actually this isn't a medical problem. So we need to actually understand the root causes of illness in our society and address those root causes. Because if we don't do that, and this is why it's important, what we do is we overprescribe, we medicalize, right? And the DHSE had a damning report that was published in 2021, which said that one in five patients are in hospital because of adverse drug reactions, because of the drugs that we gave them. And 10% of those drugs are unnecessary. The patient didn't need it. The doctor didn't need to prescribe it. The pharmaceuticals didn't need to uh, make it. And that's two billion pounds a year. Again, in the cultural context of the NHS doesn't have money, we're underfunded, healthcare is always going to have a high budget. How are we going to pay for it? And we're just prescribing, prescribing, prescribing. People are getting more ill, more ill, more ill. That is the paradox of modern medicine. And we need to step back, get a critical lens and think, okay, how can we actually sustainably improve the well-being of our patients? Because it's not just working by giving them unnecessary pills. That's why it's important. Wow. That's very eye-opening and damning, as you say, two billion pounds. I mean, it's a it's a huge problem. And I think 
I think we all see it in you know in in our daily lives as clinicians I, I remember from when I was when I was still practicing as well you you're just seeing like a small slice of that and for me um that kind of just equated to that feeling of like this is the same person coming in with the same problem over and over again nothing has really changed we've just kind of put out a fire for a short period of time but obviously this is happening on a huge scale and we're all just seeing a small slice of it but really important that you you talk about this because you know what we do in our small slice has a big effect on the larger picture right so what are the common misconceptions around social prescribing if you like what isn't social prescribing the, the sort of misconception is that social prescribing is just signposting to community assets or to things that are already existing in communities. For example, there was a newspaper release last year that said doctors to prescribe cycling to patients. And that sounds really daft. And that is daft. That's you know, rightfully, you know, a wrong soundbite to take because that, you know, cycling might be good. Yes, it's good for health, but you're not going to tell a COVID patient to go cycling to improve their health. That is not social prescribing. And unfortunately, that is some of the misconceptions that a lot of clinicians have when they're reluctant to uptake social prescribing into their clinical practice, but also just widely um, in the general public. There is also a academic sort of criticism and misconception, which is in some degrees fair. And that's that social prescribing, unfortunately, erases the political responsibility and the political determinants of health. For example, the... Guardian, and we can blurt that out if, if we don't want to put some new date news agents on. It's okay. Well, they they published a, a leaked policy draft um, saying that the government was looking for doctors to assess the financial conditions of their patients to see whether they were eligible for discounts on their energy bills in the context of the energy crisis, right, and the cost of living crisis. And that came into the context because there's this whole hoopla around social prescribing and. GPs in particular needing to be a bit more holistic and appreciating the wider determinants. And so some factions in the government said, okay, we'll also assess their financial condition. What happens if that happens? Well, if you say no, that a patient cannot receive their energy discount, that that patient isn't going to be angry at the, you know, um, the policies or the government or whoever else is behind the energy crisis. They're going to be angry at the doctor in front of them. Why am I not allowed to um, have a cheaper energy bill? Why are you getting in my way? It's unnecessary, and that's not what social prescribing is. Admittedly, there is the argument, to what degree can you socially empower someone in order to improve their health and well-being when they are systemically, politically disempowered, right? Social prescribing, in essence, is also about empowering communities, galvanizing community spirit, um, you know, injecting funds so that you have a lot of community programs that are improving resilience, sustainability, and well-being, all evidence-based as well. But to what degree can you do that when there's political determinants of health that are actually hampering the health and well-being of our patients as well? And I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I think you can and you should as a clinician. We have a duty of care of always striving for the best for our patients. We should be recognizing and should be acting on the social determinants of health. Otherwise, we're just going to sit back and say, well, the political determinants of health are much larger. They have a much more direct effect on our patients. So as long as we don't approve that, there's very little value in trying to improve the social determinants. And I, I disagree with that because that's just a laissez-faire attitude of just, I'm just going to sit back and let them do what they want. Patients need support right now. Patients need help for their well-being right now. And traditional medicine, med, uh, pills and procedures aren't helping them 
Mm. Uh, again, a, a much more expansive view on on the topic than than I've ever heard before. Like like I said, it's oftentimes, as you say, reduced down to these like very simplistic kind of ideas of what it is. So I'm really I'm really glad that we're talking about this because, uh, to be honest with you, I I've I thought social prescribing sounded like the type of thing that was needed, absolutely necessary in theory. But then when people talk about just prescribe some cycling or something like that. It doesn't, that doesn't really add up, does it? So really, I, I'm also curious, you know, you talked a little bit about what is, what is slowing down the adoption of social prescribing as the norm. Can you just talk a little bit more about what, what does it practically look like for a, a doctor or a GP to prescribe something to a patient along the lines of social prescribing? Bearing in mind these factors that you talk about, there are larger systemic and political factors at play that we can't necessarily affect all in one go, but we should be aware of and cognizant of at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the typical example that I give is in primary care, but just as a um, note on that, social prescribing can occur in tertiary care, specialist care, or in community as well, or it can be self referred to some degree. But the typical example would be. A patient comes in to their GP and we know evidence shows that one in four GP appointments are actually socially rooted rather than a medical concern. And so the GP, because of their hopefully good clinical training, would recognize that actually this patient is in need of social prescription. But because of the industrialized healthcare model, that GP only has 10 minutes with them. So what they'll do is say, actually, um, let me see if you can actually be referred to a link work. And in England, we have NHS link workers. Link workers will then refer to the patient and will have a consultation, a one-to-one consultation. It will be patient-centered, co-designed, understanding you know, a wider view. It's usually a one-hour um, sort of consultation at the very minimum. And usually there's multiple follow-ups as well. And so time is that rich resource and energy that that link worker can give to that patient so that the patient can feel understood and speak their truth not in that sort of 10 minutes where they sort of condense and then the GP has to distill distill and isolate this entire sort of 3D dimensional health into a biomedical experience. We're trying to avoid that because we know that leads to overprescribing. We know that leads to unnecessary harms. So with the link worker, the link worker can sit down, give them that time. And then they'll be able to ask, well, actually, what matters to you? If you think that you have depression, yes, we can give you SSRIs and we can give you antidepressants. But if you feel we can also help improve your lifestyle, your home, um, your, your, your home situation, is it that you're socially isolated? How can we improve you um, going into the community and making those social connections? Is it that you need to do, um, you're struggling to do physical exercise? Is it that we can get you to do some sort of therapy to understand the root causes of that, but also to create some accessible pathways to exercise for you? Because a lot of the time, either there's health literacy barriers and then there's just navigation barriers. People don't know what's out there in the community that can actually help their health and well-being. So all of that happens in a consultation. And then that link worker doesn't just say, off you go now, I've given you the knowledge. They actually go with them a lot of the time because a lot of the time there's a lot of handholding that needs to be done. These are the most dispossessed, disenfranchised patients, as it were, and they need help with navigating the system. And not only that, but then there's follow-ups as well. Did the patient actually go? Did it make a difference? Did it not? Okay, let's do something else. Let's not just leave you there because otherwise you've not been 
treated medically and we're trying to treat you more holistically and that hasn't worked and we've just left you alone. No, there's this whole sort of um, complementary process and it's patient-centered and it's personalized and it's a very sort of, it's not patronizing when I say hand-holding, it's in the sense of encouraging patients to recognize what are the valuable pathways open towards them in their communities that can actually improve their health and well-being. And that's what the link worker does. And it, that role and remit of a link worker can be very simple as, okay, let's fill out some council forms that can help improve your electricity bill, or let's see whether you're eligible for X and Y discounts, or it's, there's a community class coming up. I heard you like knitting. Let's just go there. Right? Wow, that's amazing. I And I love this this name link as well, because it's truly all of these different aspects of our lives are intertwined and, and there needs to be recognition of that, that improving someone's health can be as simple as, you know, applying for, for grants or, or, you know, for reductions in bills and such. So I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of invisible patients. So you, you've talked a bit about these invisible patients who are marginalized, people who are marginalized in one way or another, how is social prescribing helping these groups of people and tackling health inequalities, essentially? I made that connection very late on, actually. Um, like, like I said, this concept of invisible patients is what pulled me to, towards medicine. And I it became my singular professional focus. And I hope that remains. And I realized that actually with social prescribing, it's about ensuring that communities thrive. And as communities thrive, the most vulnerable populations within those communities will thrive with that community. Because otherwise, these disregarded, disenfranchised populations, they aren't going to come to the clinic. They have language barriers. They have education, health literacy barriers. They don't even know that that system exists. Or there's just poor guidelines that actually inhibits them from um, getting that health and social care. And so by circumventing this sort of issue in institutionalized healthcare, by improving the health creation capacities of communities, you're actually creating health creation capacities of everyone who's involved in that community. Now you can say, well, surely there's some sort of inaccessibility within communities too. Of course, but that's where link workers come in. They identify the most disenfranchised, whether it's from the GP or whether it's from within the community or whether it's self-referrals and they see that actually different community programs need to be a bit more inclusive or they need to be a bit more outreaching or they need to target particular vulnerable populations, for example. Mm, yeah, for sure. I think that you're so right that it, there's so much, actually there's someone who came on the show recently, his name is Chris French. I just released an episode um, about, about, with talking with him or interviewing him and he's really talking about how we can work within communities how there are a lot of organizations and services and things out there that exist that are really in touch with what people need from a grassroots level and how when we are thinking about health tech and other kinds of interventions we can actually make more of a of an impact if we are in contact with these with these groups as well we, we really have to start from a grassroots level, as you're saying, engaging people with the people and the, the, the localities and things around them, essentially, to, to help them. Because that's, that's where they live. Those are the communities that they're in. Thank you so much. You've been amazing. You've been eye-opening. You've had so much knowledge and experience to share. I know that you're a medical student, but... I think that's incredible. And I think that it, it just shows that it doesn't matter where you are in your career. 
you have enormous capacity to affect change and to to learn and to develop and grow and and really figure out what is important to you as well so thank you so much for sharing that perspective you've um you talked a little bit about the curriculum and how you know we we are in a system that exists already <laughs> there's there's a medical curriculum but i would love you to just take a step back and imagine that you are the dean of the university and you can influence the curriculum for health care students in any way that you see fit what educational experiences would you want them to have that could help them in their career to improve the healthcare experience for themselves and for other people whether that is as you say learning more about health creation and about engaging with them on a social prescribing level what would that look like for you if you were going to be the dean of university i love that question it's the magic one question um and i i think fundamentally what it's about it's about creating pockets of criticality academic criticality within the curriculum right giving space for these 18 year olds 24 year olds 30 year olds wherever, however whatever age they are whatever point of educational journey they're at to say what to ask the two foundational questions what is medicine for and what is the role of a doctor and that once you recognize the need for that you can translate that into different things maybe that's optional ssc courses but i you know i think it needs to be more central and core and i i, I think a, a really important point is actually inviting patients into the curriculum design of medicine because patients are your you know who you're dealing with I remember I had this, my first day of medical school actually was my um, uh, anatomy day, the cadaver dissection day. That was my first day of medical school. And I remember the um, sort of instructor said, remember, you're meeting your first patient. And suddenly there was this sort of stillness and silence. And, you know, everyone recognized that this is a very solemn sort of moment in our lives. We're meeting our first patient. And I reflected on that more. What does that mean? We're primed and prepped to have a very clinical gaze of seeing a patient that is silent, of seeing the patient just through their membranes. And we're seeing the human body as matter and mechanism, not as a living patient that is able to vocalize their stresses and concerns, values and beliefs and expectations. And that carries on throughout medical school. And we need to invite that patient back into medical school because that's who we're going to be most interacting with. What does that look like realistically? It could be patient partner. You know, just having that space every week, maybe within clinical skills or just talking to a real patient with lived experience, talking about not just what is good about the medical system and what good doctors are in their view, but also what did the doctor do that they hated? What did the doctor say that they thought was completely and utterly dismissive? There's really nuanced um, sort of experiences. I think once we sort of highlight that and create space for that and culture those conversations, that is where you're going to get incredible change. That is where you're going to get really competent clinicians who value their patients, who value the importance of um, patient-centered, patient-partnered care, and not just treating that patient because of a duty of care, but actually valuing that this is a life in front of me. And they've given me an immense sense of trust by opening themselves up to me in this consultation, in this clinic. And I want to reciprocate that by listening to them understanding their values and beliefs, their hopes, their fears, and treating, their, treating them holistically um, and fundamentally as well. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it makes me think about in California, there's, um, there's a, 
a university. I wish I could remember what it's called, but essentially something that they do. And I think it's partnered with IDEO or some of the partners from IDEO, which is a big design, um, big design firm around the world. They partner people with, with patients. They, they partner their students with patients and they help them to, um, essentially they work with them over a period of time and they get to know that person. They are trying to help them to improve some determinant of their health, some some kind of aspect of their health. Maybe they've got diabetes and they want to help them to reduce their sugars. And what they do is, as you're talking about, they're really getting to know that person and seeing what works, what doesn't work so well for that person and adapting and changing things as they go along and really, really being informed by the person that's in front of them. I think that's the kind of experience that we really really need to to like really figure out what it means to be a doctor because without a patient what is a doctor essentially so thank you so so much for sharing and yeah I'm I'm really excited for the great things that you're doing right now where can people learn more about you and how can they follow you and support the work that you do yeah I mean I'm just going to plug my socials so I'm I'm on LinkedIn I'm on Twitter but I, I, I think I, I work with the National Academy for Social Prescribing. We work on the global team. We look at how different countries are implementing social prescribing, how particularly low middle income countries are perhaps translating that concept or actually not even translating, but pioneering. They had the sense of community health before we did when we moved towards more insular, institutionalized concepts of health and care. But looking at how that's being translated across the world in different contexts. So the National Academy for Social Prescribing is really, um, I think, the hub of social prescribing and all things sustainable healthcare, holistic healthcare. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Brand New Doctor. I hope it inspired you in your personal journey. Check out the notes for a summary of the show with all of the important links. And if you enjoyed this, do me a favor, subscribe and share this episode with someone else you think could benefit from this message. I'd love to hear from you. So why not leave a rating and review? It really helps other people to discover the podcast too. You can also find me on LinkedIn as Rolakeojo and on Instagram as Rolakeo.so. So that's all for now, but I'll be back soon with another episode of Brand New Doctor.